Forgive the hiatus. I know it's been quite a while and my apologies, but I've been getting very busy over at A Curious Worldview. And therefore, before I introduce this episode, I want to assume that we have more interests in common than simply Nassim Taleb. If we are met here, then I'm confident you'll be interested to see what's going on there. So subscribe to the Curious World Blue podcast, which is the very top link in this podcast description, and you will see there what is the sole focus of my attention, and therefore you will also get a chance to pump that good, good juice into the algorithm. Before I introduce this episode, though, there is also quite a bit of exciting news. There will be a profile of Nassim Taleb published in one of the big cultural magazines in the coming months. I can't say specifically who and when out of superstition, but I got interviewed for it, and I hope that means I might actually end up being quoted in a Nassim Taleb profile. But nonetheless, I recorded the conversation that I had with the author, and will hopefully get a chance to publish it here soon when I have their permission. But this podcast here today is in fact an interview with the great Rory Sutherland, a man after Taleb's heart who thinks that great marketing ideas are built around the profoundly irrational, which is a sentence I'm sure you will agree with me is one you would expect to find in the inserto. Taleb blurbed Rory's latest book, which is called Alchemy, and Rory is one of Europe's most powerful advertising executives. The book is absolutely magnificent. It was arguably my favorite book of 2022. This interview starts with a conversation about Nassim Taleb, what it's like to be his friend, some of the really influential ideas that he's had that has left an impression on Rory. And then we get more into the stuff that is within Alchemy, including a lot of original uh, ideas, which Rory has not spoken about elsewhere. So I encourage you to use the timestamps to navigate the conversation. But with absolutely no further ado, here is the great Rory Sutherland. How did it feel to get Nassim Taleb on the book jacket? Uh, that was pretty good. I'm a huge Taleb fan um, and I'd known him for some time and we'd corresponded quite a bit, met for dinner occasionally. Um, but um, uh, it was pretty much a you know, pretty perfect uh, kind of imprimatur. And uh, he thoroughly enjoyed the book. Which, I mean, you know, not only to the extent of uh, you know agreeing with much of it, but also finding it entertaining. And I definitely took the win there. Um, I was I was absolutely delighted. Uh, you know, not an easy man to please in some cases, but um, uh, I, I've I've been a very very long admirer. I think this whole question of uh, statistical misrepresentation. Um, is a much, much more widespread problem than we realize. It suddenly occurred to me there's a sort of problem, in fact, which is that if you think that statistical competence, roughly speaking, comes on a kind of bell curve for Gaussian distribution, okay, the Gaussian. Yeah, then really, really good statisticians are going to be outnumbered sort of 10 or 15 to 1 by statisticians who are merely competent. Okay, now... In something like plumbing, sometimes you want a really great plumber, but quite a lot of the time, a perfectly competent plumber is fine. Okay, They're not going to do any harm. My concern with statistics is that um, people who think they know what they're doing statistically can be spectacularly, I mean, order of magnitude wrong and spectacularly dangerous. And I don't think we fully realize the extent to which you know, fairly naive assumptions, which highly intelligent people confidently make every day, can quite often be wrong. 
Give us an example of those naive assumptions. Uh, I mean, the whole question, obviously, of assuming things are Gaussian when they aren't, which then blinds you to black mm -hmm. swans, hence, hence the book. Mm -hmm. uh, also, the extent to which I think businesses deal in averages. Because your average customer, in a weird kind of way, possibly doesn't even exist. And when you average something, and most, most business information is aggregated and averaged. And the reason it's aggregated is that that's what the finance people care about. They care about totals. Okay? And so when you're reporting up, what you do is you add information together and then average it. Now, in that process, the really valuable information, which is about variance, difference, anomalies, etc., all the really significant information gets lost. And if we, what we tend to do then, partly just for purposes of mathematical tractability, is we make the assumption that the world is smooth even when it's lumpy. And so, I mean, I, I'll give you a lovely example of this, which, because uh, you wanted a specific example. Um, if you look at models for, let's say, investment in high-speed rail, they don't make the distinction between saving 100 people 20 minutes once a year and saving one person 20 minutes 100 times a year. You know, effectively, it's looked at as the value of high-speed rail is time saved by people not being on trains, and it's assumed to be equally valuable and important whether, it's, whether mm. a small amount of time is saved by a lot of people or a lot of time is saved by fewer people. But in terms of human behaviour, of course, they're totally different, because if I travel to Manchester from London once a year and save 30 minutes each direction, and so do a million other people do that, well, what you've created is not really a game-changer, it's just a mild convenience. On the other hand, if you make a commuter railway 20 minutes faster, fewer people benefit, but they do benefit to the extent where it will actually change their behaviour. You know, you might be able to move to Canterbury mm -hmm. because there's high-speed one. Okay, you know, because your 100, 200 times a year journey is now reduced by an hour. That's a big deal. Having, mm -hmm. having, for example, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, 200 people save one hour a year is, and that possibly, that possibly should have killed the Concorde, by the way, uh, which is simply, and I, I did the maths, okay, and I found out the person who'd used the Concorde most frequently. He was interestingly on the first flight <laughs> and on the last flight of the Concorde. Um, and even in his case, and he was a complete outlier, complete weirdo, actually, to be honest. But even in his case, um, uh, it only sa the Concorde only saved him something like 15 minutes a day of his working life, something which could easily have been achieved by his simply moving a bit closer to the office. Okay, so no, if every plane had become a Concorde, Concorde might have been a bit of a game changer. But the number of people who travel between New York and London so frequently that it, it actually saved them an appreciable amount of time uh, wasn't really great enough to make it worth the investment. Furthermore, what nobody really spotted is Concorde works brilliantly if you're flying east to west, but it's frankly a bit of a non-starter if you're flying west to east. Because, because when that? you're flying from New York to London, uh, you already do it in three hours, okay? Uh, you actually do it in nine hours, but you're asleep for six of them. Now, the problem with the Concorde is the flights out left London at, I think, if I've got it right, one of them kind of left at nine in the morning and got into New York at seven. And the other one might have left at midday and got into New York at ten. Both pretty useful. You've got a really long, really productive day. 
on the way back, I think I've got this right, you basically had to leave New York in the morning. Um, it, and so Concord doesn't really work. Uh, an overnight flight works much, much better flying east uh, than a Concord flight does. If you remember, I think one Concorde flight got in, used to get in at about 5 o'clock into London. That was the, I think it was the later one of the two. And that must have, uh, doing the maths, okay, f um, that must have left New York at, let me see, 9 o'clock in the morning. The, you know, day flights, if you think about it, are very, very rare. Airlines don't like them much mm. because the plane's on the ground overnight. It's... Um, Oh, I mean, this is what I'm saying. Is the world? This is the other great phrase of Nassim's, which I think, I think is the most important one. I think the subtitle of his most recent book was "Hidden Asymmetries in Everyday Life." <laughs> and the two mistakes we make is we is for the purposes of nice mathematics, we assume the world is smooth when it's lumpy, okay, and we assume the world is symmetrical when it isn't. Okay, you're in Australia at the moment, presumably. Now, in Stockholm. So you're in Stockholm. Oh, <laughs> yes. fantastic. Okay. Well, here's an example of an asymmetry. Okay. Freedom of movement within the European Union. Can you really have freedom of movement in a kind of symmetrical, balanced way when some countries speak English and some countries don't? Now, On the face of it, no. The problem is that there are probably 10, 15 million people in continental Europe who speak English well enough to take my job, potentially. Okay, <laughs> If I moved to Poland, I'd be sweeping the streets. And it's simply mm -hmm. a language. It's a language. Giant asymmetry. asymmetry. Now, I, I checked on the data at the time and discovered at the time we left the EU, there were more British-born people working in Australia than in the whole of continental Europe. Wow. That's a great little insight. Uh, the, the population of Perth is one-eighth British-born. Okay? okay? So that's on the other side of the world. Why? Yeah. Well, the simple reason is that, you know, I, you know if, you, if, you look at country, if you look at the Commonwealth, and you created freedom of movement in the Commonwealth, well, okay. It's the that, asymmetry. It's easier for them pose, to move to Australia than I mean, I, I, mean I, you know, I could, well, I mean, legally, I'm not sure I'd, I'd be allowed to, but I could theoretically start an ad agency in India or Jamaica, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm not sure I entirely master the, uh, you know, the local dialect in each place, but I could, I could theoretically operate a Ghanaian right. um, advertising agency, okay? Um, and similarly, people from Jamaica can come here and indeed do very successfully work in advertising. Great. Totally happy. It is at least symmetrical in terms of opportunity. Yeah. Uh, you know, basically, English and other languages, um, it's a case, it, it, they're not reverse compatible. You know, to use the language of kind of plug adapters, uh, you know, what works in one way doesn't necessarily work yeah. backwards. <laughs> And so that's just a classic case where something obviously quite important. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying it was a game changer. I'm not saying it was a reason to leave the EU or anything of that kind. I'm just saying that the <laughs> fact that nobody mentioned this as a possible issue right. is yeah. kind of interesting. Uh, and Taleb does that so well, doesn't he? He takes these things which are kind of, on the face of it, quite obvious and almost instinctual, things you perhaps should have known beforehand, but then he just gives this really tight and uh, attractive language to it and all of a sudden you can make sense of it and apply it to different things and, and here's you the know. most important one by the way is Taleb's work on um, uh, IQ possibly the most important okay. one because we automatically and I've fallen into this trap tend to see 
humans, which I don't think they should, uh, you know, I tended historically to see humans kind of ranked on a ladder. Bill Gates said this. He always believed initially in business that any problem was simply a matter of throwing enough intellectual firepower at it. And, you know, if you put high IQ individuals in a place, you're more likely to solve the problem. And he very quickly came to realise, and particularly in fields like sales and marketing, that they're entirely complementary skills. Um, and Taleb's work suggests that what we should be... At the moment, OK, an awful lot of stuff, the sorting hat of higher education assumes that people are rankable on a linear level and that the higher up you do, for some reason higher education is considered to be a reliable proxy for your performance in the workplace. I don't think it is, even remotely, okay, but never mind that. But there is this assumption that, you know, uh, if we allow the quality people to rise at the top, that's the basis of a successful um, state. Now, actually, we should be gunning far more for diversity of opportunity rather than equality of opportunity. With equality of opportunity, we rank everybody on the same criteria, put them through the sorting hat, and put them on a ladder. Actually, what makes society work is complementary skills. And I learned that going into an ad agency. There are people who have spectacular organizational skills who are a disaster if you ask them to write a memo. There are equally people who can solve a weird creative problem, but mm -hmm. are, you know, more or less enumerate. Okay? Mm -hmm. It's worth noting, by the way, that um, I was looking at, you know, uh, you know, Faraday, Watt, okay, Stevenson, okay, they're all self-taught, intriguingly, and I found that kind of interesting. Right. Um, but um, Taleb as well, largely self-taught. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely right. I mean, he went. To, I think he went to Wharton actually, so he must have had a business education. But but, but, the but mathematics... like his uh, his yeah. education on risk and randomness, he yeah. would say, was uh, self-taught. Yeah. And what he did was he allowed his instinct to inform his theory and yep. his experience to inform his theory, yep. okay, rather than theorizing and then applying it to execution. Right. And the, the order in which you do those two things is another great asymmetry, by the way. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know I mean, there are, there are huge asymmetries of kind of sequence. You know, A and then B and B and then A are entirely different. So that's another example of this. But... I mean, what, what's interesting to me about uh, about the IQ question is that what Taleb shows is that now, okay, he would admit this that okay, um, you know, income is not a proxy for it's not a perfect proxy for success, but nonetheless, you can't game it, and since most people try and be richer, it's not a totally hopeless uh, measure of life outcome. I mean, uh, you know, it, 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 I mean, you know, at a kind of larger scale level. And his point is that there is a correlation between IQ and income, but it's almost all driven by the left-hand side. Mm -hmm. Once means? you reach an IQ of about 100, 105 or something, uh, basically the, the, the slope can pretty much levels off. Now, I'd still, I mean, I'll still have debate with Nassim and I'll say there probably are some fields like, you know, theoretical physics where there's probably a higher barrier. But basically what happens is that most of this correlation between um, success and IQ is driven by the fact that if you have an IQ below 90 or 85 or something, there are incredibly few fields in which you can be genuinely mm. successful. However, I think, um, yeah. I mean, and, and my point about that is the asymmetry of proxy measures and how reliable they are, okay? So, if you, it, I would say that this is similar. If you took people and you said, okay, we're going to 
decide who gets to play cricket by how well they play football. Okay. <laughs> at one level, it would be reliable, by which I mean people who are absolutely shit sorting at football, for athletics, absolutely, yeah. you know, basically have no you know hand-eye coordination. They're useless. Yep. They're immobile. Whatever it may be. If you're mm-hmm. absolutely shit at football, you're not going to be any good at cricket. You know, yes. that would be not not a perfect assumption. You know, I mean, Babe Ruth was you know baseballer, but pretty fat guy, you'd, right? You'd cancel okay. out a lot of noise in that. But you cancel sure. you cancel out a lot of nonsense. Is it safe to say that the best footballers are going to be the best cricketers? Absolutely not. No. Okay. No. And so, using the same kind of thing, just because something correlates across, a, you know. A, a wide range. The suggestion that it therefore correlates in a, in a narrower range of deciding, mm. for example, who goes to university or indeed SAT scores. And I, I also accept that I have a bit of a dog in this fight because my great aunt was an anthropologist. I only met her once. My great aunt was an anthropologist called Beatrice Blackwood, and she was involved in the States, although she was great a great name, uh, with um, early kind of IQ research. And one of the things she kind of noticed was that. The, the the effective axiomatic assumption with which IQ research started was that you know a Princeton professor was the highest form of human life and human intelligence, <laughs> and therefore tests at which they did disproportionately well were considered to have great value. Whereas once you had a test, for example, memorization of poetry, in which interestingly, say, um, Latinos did better than Princeton professors, Right, mm. they decided that obviously wasn't a valid test of intelligence <laughs> because it didn't come out with yep. kind of Princeton academics at the top. And my my, yep. my aunt was discomforted by this. You know, mm. she was shrewd enough to go, hold on, this is you know we're start we're starting here with a dog in the fight. This is nice. completely yeah. um, yeah. dispassionate inquiry. Um, something else I think Taleb uh, says about IQ testing as well is applying the Wittgenstein's ruler to it. You know, are you measuring the test or is the test, test measuring, measuring you? Just because you take a, um, you know, a, what pattern is this showing and what word is missing here and predict the next five numbers, you're not, you're testing for a very narrow field of intelligence and therefore society is then built around it. I mean, how do you do on IQ tests? And my, my, my reason I'm confused is that the wordy ones and the numbery ones and the ones yeah. that are a test of logic, I'm pretty damn, pretty damn good at, right? Okay, now some of that with the wordy things, I think is just doing classics. Also, just practicing for that narrow domain. And pr- it's not well, even a yeah. Well, I mean, quite a lot of word and verbal logic sentences require you to put words in the right order. Okay, now I don't mean you know I, you know if you've done Latin, which is basically a language where the words are in the wrong order. Okay, <laughs> if you spent seven years of your life doing that, you're pretty keen on cryptic crosswords or whatever it may right. be. Okay, it's gonna help. Right, I mean, practice undoubtedly is going to help. One of the strange things, I do cryptic crosswords, and after No, you speak cri- about this in the book. And, and weirdly, I can see anagrams. In a, my, there's some weird thing where I know what it's an anagram of, and I know what the phrase is supposed to mean, and I can somehow, in a way I can't explain, without writing the letters down or crossing letters off, I can just go, you know, Cart, cart horse is an anagram of orchestras. Okay, right, okay. Not, not very useful, to be honest, okay, in the real world. But you just go, oh, yeah, cart horse orchestras, yeah, bang. Okay, you don't yeah. even have to do the O R C H. But that comes after about four or five years of doing cryptic crosswords. Mm. And um, uh, so, you know, I mean, 
Undoubtedly, my my thing is that also there's something weird because uh, the wordy ones, the numbery ones, the logical ones. Yep, fine. Those fucking shape things can't stand the bloody things. I don't know. Okay, <laughs> you know, you've got like a, a grid of like nine shapes. Yeah, there's yeah. like stripy triangle. You know, circle that's white on the left, bl- black mm-hmm. on the right. Then the circle grows like a TV aerial mm. on the top right hand <laughs> side. I'm going, and they say, well, what, what's next? I go, fucking anything, to be honest. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, that sequence and pattern recognition visually, mm. um, I can do it if it's, a, if it's a word game, totally different. Well, something that's yeah. that domain dependent seems to have a bit of a... I mean, it's also, it's also, I mean, there are some very interesting people who claim to have done IQ tests which scored them very low. I mean, I mean, okay, 124 isn't low, but what's his name, the physicist, you know, uh, did the um, uh, the O-ring things for the space shuttle? Oof, sorry, mate, don't know. Uh, but I mean, um, I'll, I'll remember it in a second. But I mean, you know, he was a Nobel Prize-winning physicist who claimed that when he did IQ tests, he came out at 124. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, he's one of the few physicists who'd actually be honest enough to tell you he got 124. But, but you're also not you're not testing for what were the conditions on the day? Richard, you know, Feynman, had he just had way. a meal? Like all these things, you know? No, well, well, this oh, is R- Richard Feynman, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah now yeah, that's he, a great example of someone yeah. who Taleb would admire. I'm sure I've never heard him speak about him. I'm sure he would because he's sort of like a... Um, yeah. Totally. Learns by experience, uh, etc. Has these random eclectic interests, would class himself type of a flaneur in a different uh, way. And, and fascinatingly, his interest in physics came around with tinkering around repairing radios. Which is he started yes. by basically, you know, in, you know, mm. tinkering with reality, and then <laughs> started to realise there were inferences and rules you could derive from that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is kind of, you know, a kind of fascinating route in. Um, mm. But no, I mean, this is this is a great example. I mean, you know, it's. Uh, uh, I, I, and I thought that IQ work was incredibly important because, I, I mean, okay. This idea that you can use higher education as a proxy for who's employable strikes me as very, very dangerous. What you should do is give someone the real job to do and see how they do. Mm. And I think we're probably wasting a spectacular amount of talent because they're people who can do a brilliant job with a practical application. Who, you know, I know people like this in advertising, right? If you say, here is a real world problem, can you solve it? They manifest, Mm. um, you know, flashes of genius but if you say I want you to write an essay on the Peloponnesian Wars not entirely unreasonable they can't be reasonably they can't be bothered you know or it just doesn't excite them because there's no practical application for you know and the number of people who are happy operating in abstractions okay is a, is a subset of the people who are actually happy and capable operating in the real world and we're mm. testing for this weird skill around abstractions, which I think is, you know, is actually. I mean, you. I mean, I bet you see this in programmers all the time. People who basically, you know, uh, weren't necessarily academically particularly good, but when it came to programming problems, could manifest kind of, you know, spectacular ability and concentration and um, uh, and, and output. I think there's also a um, there's a survivorship bias to the idea of being a programmer as well. So many people got it, and the field became so saturated. It actually turns out it's not a particularly difficult skill to learn, um, and so you have. I, then... I, I would have thought there might be a case where uh, certain problems require, uh, you know, that it may be that ninety percent of what you do is relatively straightforward, but there are yes, certain. Yes, it would certainly be like yeah. that. It'd be the eighty twenty distribution. Um, 
forgive me for um, belaboring the Taleb point. Uh, it's just because I did something that he would be um, terrifically disappointed and, and, and mad at. But I made a podcast which sort of talks about his work and uh, sort of not reviews his books, but just discusses the ideas from the book. And I think one that is most influential for me and I'm projecting onto you now, I imagine it's very influential upon you as well because it's something you would wrestle with every day. But it's just the idea of how can you predict a future of infinite possibilities based off a finite experience of the past because you're there trying to um, you know, create attention, do something original. Um, you know. uh, there are, well, um, first of all, it, it depends on how far ahead you attempt to plan. And what's undoubtedly true is that you know, one of the asymmetries... Uh, is that all big data comes from the same place, the past, okay? So companies that become absolutely obsessed with justifying their future activity on the basis of pre-existing data are to some extent, as Gerd Gigerenzer, a big friend of Taleb, says, they're over-optimizing on the past, okay? Because the past was once one of many possible futures. You know, there was a, you know, there was a, there was a past version very nearly experienced of 2020 in which some bug didn't escape from the lab, right? <laughs> okay. Now, you know, um, the, the past, you know, the fact that all big data essentially comes from pre-existing sources and there are all kinds of biases in the kind of data that's available, not least you know, what, what's called in AI the um, alignment problem, which is what's quantifiable isn't necessarily what's important. Mm. Okay, that um, the confidence we attach to solutions derived from data, particularly when dealing with qu future questions, but e even actually when um, uh, when looking at explanations for past events, has to be treated with great kind of scepticism. I, I, I mean, you know, I, I look at this alignment problem. Okay, there would be a correlation, okay, between people's happiness with a taxi firm. And how quickly the cab turned up, you know, um, I, you know, I, 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 you know, you find that correlation. Mm -hmm. Now, is that is that actually the main causation? Well, to some extent, yes, because at the extreme, a taxi that never turns up, which by the way might not show up on the data, just to be clear, mm -hmm. you know, there's that wonderful thing where you cancel trains to improve your um, uh, your punctuality statistics, which happens with <laughs> British Rail because a train that doesn't exist can't be late. Okay. Yep. But parking that, okay, there will be people whose taxi took an hour longer than they expected to arrive. Those people are seriously pissed off, and they're pissed off because the taxi took too long to arrive. Most, I would argue, psychologically, a large part of the disquiet is driven not by duration, but by uncertainty. And it's simply that the longer you have to wait, the more uncertainty you experience. And Uber, in my view, solved that with a map. Because when you can see the taxi that's coming to your house and it's on the map and you can watch it moving and explain to yourself why it stopped, oh, look, it's stuck at those traffic lights, okay? The mental experience of waiting, the pain, um, Tim Harford's written about this recently in the FT, um, thankfully crediting me quite a bit, the pain <laughs> is driven much more by the level of uncertainty mm -hmm. for which we don't have a mathematical unit, okay? than it is by the duration of the wait, for which we do. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm, 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 I personally, I don't even believe in speed cameras, okay? In terms of using, wow, okay. in terms of using AI to augment decisions, right, I'm pretty happy. 
if the human, if a human and a reasonably sane person is there doing some double checking, mm -hmm. should a camera be able to issue someone with a fine and three penalty points automatically? Mm. Now, okay, here's here's a question. Okay, uh, there are speed cameras on the uh, A13 out of London. This reminds me of one of the most bizarre conversations I had, which was um, about a year ago, which was. Uh, in re relation to his book Noise, uh, having a, an extended conversation with um, Daniel Kahneman about a particular speed camera on the M11 near Chigwell. Okay. Now, <laughs> this was an interesting question. So one, if a speed camera catches lots of motorists, is that the fault? If it, now, a disproportionately high motor a number of motorists, there are two possibilities. It's a problem with the motorists. You know, you happen to have caught a stretch of road where boy racers love to, you know, welly it along in a you know, souped-up citron, whatever it is, okay? That might be. Or it might be it's a problem with the signage. In other words, you know, you have put a sign saying 50. Um, in, other, in other words, the, the distance between the sign that forces people to slow down and the speed camera is too low because people will not slow down very dramatically for fear of someone hitting them from behind. Okay. Now, that, I think, is the speed camera on the M11 near Chigwell. You're coming down the M11. Let's be honest, okay, it's 1 o'clock in the morning. You're going 70x, maybe 80. Okay? Maybe you shouldn't be, different matter. But even if you're going 70, right, you come across this sign that says 50. What you do not do is decelerate by 20 miles an hour in the space of 300 yards, because if you do that, you're frightened someone behind you will basically rear-end you. Okay? So you leave it. You're going 60 by the time you hit the speed camera. Okay, maybe you're going, you know, I don't know, maybe you're going 57, okay? Now, my argument is the, the very high number of, um, uh, 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 this is the Chris Hewn uh, Memorial Speed Camera, by the way, okay? You know, now, the, the very high level of people caught by that, it's something like the most profitable speed camera in Essex by a factor of three or something whacked like that may well suggest that what you need to do is, is basically redesign the road markings and the signage, okay, not continue to prosecute people. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a camera that's an outlier, as you said, you've got a Wittgenstein's ruler problem in a way. Mm -hmm. Okay? Are you, measuring, are you measuring the foolishness of the driver or the foolishness of the person who placed the speed yeah. camera? Now, if you take the eight. This is really nerdy, isn't it? I'm sorry about this. Okay. But then you get into the, the bad actors and the bad system design, you know. Well, if, I mean, if you... My, my, my other quibble with the speed camera is that <coughs> someone should watch... You know, if they're going to find me, you know, what is it, 90 quid now, or whatever, okay? Uh, for 90 quid, you can pay someone, obviously, to watch, you know, 30 seconds of footage before the offence and 30 seconds after. Right. Oh, right. And, make and you should be able decision. to judge, is there a contextual reason mm. why this person decided to go faster than this? Okay? Now, I'll, okay, I, I've been caught by speed cameras where it's a fair cop, cop gov. I'll come quietly. I was to blame, okay? But on one occasion, I was avoiding a guy who was obviously drunk and weaving all over the road, and the mm. only thing I could really do, he might have been having a massive row with his wife. I couldn't quite work out what was going on. But he was basically weaving from lane to lane in a completely frenetic state. I thought, OK, go to the fast lane of the motorway, wait for him to weave over to the left and welly it to get the hell out of there. Now, anybody watching that incident, a cop, for example, or someone watching the video, would have arrested him before they arrested me. 
okay? And they might have arrested both of us, right? Well, and I, you know, at least I could then give them my side of the story. But they didn't. They let him off for weaving all over the road, and they fined me for going too fast in an attempt to avoid him. Now, that's what I call about the contextual blindness, which is the model only knows what it knows. Mm. Okay, now I think, you know, another case in point would be the speed limit on the A13 is 40 miles an hour. Nothing to do with pedestrian safety because there aren't any pavements and the whole thing has kind of, you know, um, um, crash barriers along the side. It's done to increase the flow of traffic by slowing cars down so more cars pass a given point in, in a given time, okay? Now, at one o'clock in the morning, maybe you shouldn't, you know, when the road is completely empty, maybe you shouldn't find people for going 50. Because mm. the reason the speed limit was imposed was, in that case, not necessarily a safety um, motive. It was actually a traffic flow motive. And in that case, you should be sensitive to context, time of day, road conditions, and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Look, bro, we could uh, we could beat that horse really to death. Uh, no, no worries at all. Um, no, no, but, I think but, people no, will really, be. It's really, it's really important yeah. because we have you know weird things like mm -hmm. um, you know you know a weird kind of Silicon Valley kind of death cult believes you can kind of quantify the world to a point where every decision becomes optimal. Yeah, and I mean, never mind. Uh, it's the, this it, reminds it, me of. This reminds me of Taleb talking about the C. elegans worm and how much we don't understand complexity. Does that anecdote ring a bell to you? Uh, no, you tell tell me. I, I uh, do so remember... basically, this worm is it has three hundred neurons, and um, with a neuron, each additional neuron doubles the complexity according to the amount of neurons that were in it before. So the difference between three hundred and three hundred and one is non-trivial. The difference between one billion and one billion and one is just completely unequatable. And um, Taleb says, we don't understand how the brain of the C. elegans worm works. We can map it out and we can say it has 300 neurons, but we don't understand how they behave with each other because the complex complexity is such. So therefore, how can we make any inferences about human behavior or the human brain? And that as an anecdote of system complexity, I think could match onto um, so, you know, so many things. Like you just say, the Silicon Valley death, death cult trying to use data to solve the world. You know, I, I, mean, I, do remember, I do remember going to a talk at the Santa Fe Institute, which was open to the public. I, um, uh, and uh, I pitched up and you had M the late Murray Gelman there and, you know, formerly an astrophysicist, saying, it's very simple, what you have to understand is the C. elegans worm is much more complicated than the sun. Okay? <laughs> you know, as, you know, as a physicist, yeah. you can basically say what's going on in the sun, but in this mm -hmm. worm, you know, you have a degree of kind of complexity and emergence, and God knows what. I mean, by the way, uh, I naively kind of thought that... Um, there'd be a New Yorker or New York Times or Atlantic article by now saying, you know, um, COVID, here's how it works, this is what really happened. Mm. But actually, in terms of the transmission, um, okay, let, let's also remember one thing, which is that uh, um, science kind of failed on ventilation, I think, early, and failed on the fact that it was airborne to a much greater extent than was believed. Okay. So, you know, we ought, we, ought to, we ought to actually give science a kind of due process and say, obviously, it did a magnificent job of, you know, vaccine development, assuming you aren't one of the people who, 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 who believes otherwise. I mean, I think you generally did do a pretty good job there. I agree. Um, okay. And, you know, um, you might argue that science might have created the problem in the first place by going and collecting shit from bat caves, which is not something normal human beings would instinctively do. Okay. A normal human being 
basically faced with a cave in, you know, needn't batshit. We go, uh, it smells of shit. I'm not <laughs> going in there. Okay. Now that's an evolved instinct, you know, disgust for feces. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It takes a scientist to go, no, on the contrary, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> put myself in a bit of PPE and I'm going to go in with a shovel and then transport the stuff to Wuhan. Now, even if the lab wasn't the source of the leak, what the lab was doing and putting that lab in the middle of a city of 10 million people was proper whack, right? You know, if you're going to have a, you know, a good, you know, a good level four bio lab or whatever, any kind of lab like that, and they weren't even doing research. Put it in the desert. Level four. Uh, yeah, yeah, put it in some re- weird remote island, right? Don't put it in the yeah. middle of a city. Okay? <laughs> For God's sake. I mean, jeez, these, you know, are these people fucking idiots? Right? I mean... <laughs> So you know, even if even if the you know it was the wet fish market or you know this is whatever it is, you know mm-hmm. whatever whatever you know whatever whatever the cause was, what they were doing was whack, okay, you know, and the gain of function tests were whack, okay. I mean you should you know so let's face it you know it's a bit of a score draw for science if it actually ends up solving a problem that it created in the first place, right? <laughs> um, but I still haven't seen that piece that goes here at COVID. Basically, this is how it works. Okay. Mm-hmm. I here's a weird one. Okay, now early on, being a bit of a you know, um, maybe maybe this was unethical of me to do this. Come to think of it, but it didn't occur at the time. Early on, on in the pandemic, I went and bought a Philips um, HEPA air filter, which okay. basically you turn on in the room and it filters your air. I also opened the windows a lot um, long before this was advised, and I got a bit. And I expected those HEPA air filters. At some point during the pre-vaccinated pandemic, I thought, I better buy one now for 500 quid because they're going to be going for five grand on eBay, you know. Never happened. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Why? Well, I got a lot of weird people saying, ah, the virus is too small to be caught by a HEPA air filter. And my problem was, the virus isn't travelling alone. It's riding on some particle of gob or mucus, right? Secondly, HEPA air filters actually capture particles much smaller than they... Mm. Um, because NASA although instinctively that that could be a, a decent argument, I vaguely speculated that one reason why Germans might have done quite well in the early pandemic was they tend to sleep with the windows open. They have some really weird habits. <laughs> um, but any talk of ventilation and also the whole cloth mask debate was mm. kind of unfairly closed down. I think um, because someone said no, no, no. You know, there was almost a kind of absence of evidence. You know, uh, issue where common sense decisions couldn't be taken because you didn't yet have a kind of randomized control trial. And we mm. need to worry about that because if science is unable to actually operate by the sort of common sense and precautionary principles when time is of the essence, uh, you've got a problem there, okay? Um, and so I think, I think there was something... I, I think it's interesting, though, that we still don't have a kind of, okay, this is basically how it works. Yeah, you know. Let's face it. But isn't no that explicable just but, because of the political chaos surrounding that subject, particularly? No, I, I, I mean, it probably is just a degree. Okay, so I was talking to Conrad Wolfson the other day, and he he said something that I'd also said, which is all the models of COVID transmission, okay, seem to assume that it was binary. You either got infected or you didn't. There was no consideration of the fact that the size of the initial dose might have a bearing on the course of the disease. Now, this kind of apparently varies according to viral infections. There are, there are ones which are initial dose dependent in terms of the course, and there are some which are a bit more binary. 
But obviously, what you do might be very, very different if you acknowledge the fact that the scale of infection, initial infection, might have a bearing on what happens next. You know, because, you know, the, you know the, if you like, there are two, there are two basic approaches. There's the absolute approach, which is you cannot afford to get infected, okay? But there's also an approach which you might say includes cloth masks, which is every little helps, okay? You know, and um, uh, then you might say, well, there's a further level of complexity, which is um, do you want people to get mildly ill? Because if people are mildly ill, they're more likely to wander about and infect more people. What you want people to do is to get seriously ill, because in that case they'll withdraw from society. And so mm. all these things make the whole thing incredibly complicated, because there's a mm -hmm. there's a loop back between behaviour um, and you know and, and consequences. And once once behaviour is a factor in your model, you 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 know at that point you can't assume things like linearity, averages, smooth distributions, because human behaviour has not and human perception and and human response to what we see, and our interpretation of what we see, has not evolved to maximise accuracy, it's evolved to maximise fitness. I heard a very interesting thing um, uh, on this book, which I do recommend, called the, um, uh, it's called the um, Algorithms to Live By, but I think Brian Christian and somebody Griffiths, have I got it right? One of the interesting things is that, uh, you know, we always talk about social media messing up people's perception because suddenly what you're experiencing isn't representative mm. of life as it really is, okay? Because, you know, things that are sensationalist or hostile or extreme uh, gain much more saliency and traction and distribution than things that are banal. Yep. And... You know, I, I'd always been conscious of that particular thing, but he, Brian Christian, I think, or possibly the other guy called Griffiths, makes the point, actually, that's true of just the invention of language. That once you have language, <coughs> okay, stories are not representative of reality. And so our kind of Bayesian priors, our prior assumptions, <coughs> are messed up simply by the existence of language because people will talk about freak events much, much more um, frequently and, and right, yeah. you know, to a much That's more appreciative true. and interesting and larger audience. If you say, you know, I went for a walk today and not much happened. Mm. But know. we still do convey those banal messages through language. It's the same medium that will then go on and tell an embellished story. Uh, would that necessarily be uh, no, I corollary think, I mean, to social media? Because you don't have the banal in social media because it just doesn't do any... any well, any I, try, I tried this, a wonderful experiment. <coughs> which is going on Twitter, I challenge people to do it, and expressing a kind of moderate, considered opinion. <laughs> like, I find Piers Morgan quite entertaining in small doses, you know, but I wouldn't necessarily want to go on holiday with him. You know, anything like that, you know, if you went an opinion, okay, try going on Twitter and going, you know, I think Rishi Sunak on balance is quite interesting as a prime minister, but I'm not entirely comfortable about da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. Okay, those things, those things basically go nowhere. You don't get any likes, you don't get any retweets. People go, what the hell are you posting that for? It's a mm, measured, mm. considered opinion. Okay, whereas if you go and you know basically go, you know, it's either you know you're a Corbynista or some sort of you know <laughs> whack job fanatic libertarian at the no. other extreme. Okay, those opinions, uh, you know, have a kind of you know ludicrous 
artificial simplicity to them, which mm. makes them if um, it may, it may make but them it, annoying. But something that's really annoying is getting a response, right? There's also perhaps um, this is me just instinctually thinking it. I don't know if this if it, if this opinion has any merit or not. But there could be there could be a bias to your experience A B testing a. Um, a milk toast opinion and then a, a wild opinion because you have quite a large audience that's going to interact with you. Um, for the majority of people who have social media accounts, they can't really even trial A-B test the difference between that at all because in both cases, it's going to be a relatively zero response. I don't know if that is an interesting you know, uh, I mean, node that, to put in there. Uh, the, the other thing that happens if you have a large number of followers, which is interesting, is... Uh, you're very conscious of uh, people's facility, people's, uh, a, that if you say anything to 100,000 people, okay, mm. roughly speaking, 1,000 people will misunderstand you, either mm -hmm. willfully or accidentally. So, um, uh, and sometimes it's, will, it's willful incomprehension in the attempt most of the time scale. surely yeah, yeah benefit yeah. of the doubt but, but actually actually dismissed out actually you've got to remember you know i mean okay now very clear thing okay british english is not everybody's first language okay i, I mm. don't mean you know i'm not suggesting that you know the people follow me on twitter don't understand english but british english has some peculiarities oh, but for sure yeah there's I'm, so much between the lines that they'll miss I, without I, a doubt quite by the way means a totally different thing in british english to american english sometimes right. Mm -hmm. I can't explain it, okay? It was quite yeah. brilliant means it was really, really brilliant. Mm. But it was quite mm. good means it was fairly good, but it wasn't that great, okay? Uh, it's yeah. completely... It's the, the British English use of the word quite is completely whack, and Americans are at least consistent in it, okay? I, mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. the fact that it's used as both a sort of qualifier and a kind of intensifier. Yeah, and also a, like a, <coughs> a negative inflection at the end quite. of a sentence. Quite. quite. <laughs> 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 which means you are full of shit okay yeah um, so so you know i mean you know there are various cultural things i mean i got a load of grief from americans i'm part welsh and i just tweeted a joke with a very cute picture of a sheep it was really really cute and i i just i just um i, I just tweeted the picture of the a, a very cute looking sheep which said welsh tinder just gets better by the day okay now there's a peculiar thing there a bit like for example in wisconsin um you, the, the fans of the Milwaukee Brewers and the, what the who would it be? The, be the Green Pay Packers or something, basically wear huge wedges of cheese on their head at games to own the insult of cheese head, which is applied to the population of Wisconsin, okay? Um, which I suppose comes from German, actually, Kaiserkopf, I think. It's, you know, anyway. But um, in the same way, weirdly and, and strangely, you know, Welsh people kind of own the insult around sheep shagging you know you don't deny it you just almost treat it as a badge of honor and then just move on and it's a you know it's a known strategy that lots of groups have used and and you know, owning the insult is a practice which is adopt i mean the n-word probably originates that way i don't know okay right where you own the insult among your own community but i got a huge amount of abuse from americans you know or a couple of americans going you know for god's sake it's 2021 or whatever it is blah 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 and I had to explain that, you know, this this is actually sort of self-deprecating humour. It's not abuse. And so it's very, very easy, you know, with a large audience to be misunderstood. Um, and, and then it's even easier, perhaps, to be willfully misinterpreted by people yeah. who just want to create some sort of, you know, 
spat. Mm-hmm. I'm, so let's face it. You know, yeah, finish off your point. When you have a character <laughs> limit, it isn't possible to write with the kind of you know nuance that you would, you would enjoy <laughs> when writing a book. Who would have thought? Yeah. Now this, uh, just to round off the point on Taleb, this might be a silly question to ask in public, but what's he like as a bloke? Um, Because he has this giant public persona and I I don't know how to make heads or tails of it. Um, I've personally found him lovely. I mean, uh, he obviously, you know, know, fires back abusively um, uh, in a way that baffles a lot of people. But it took a while for me to realize that in many cases he's right to be cross because these statistical misconceptions uh, are extraordinarily costly. Because in a weird way, what, what, it, it's, it's that old thing at the beginning of, I think, is it Margin Call? No, probably the big short, isn't it? It's not, funny enough, Mark Twain never said this, I think. It's attributed to Mark Twain. It's, you know, it's not what you... It's not what you don't know that can hurt you. It's what you think is true that ain't so. And so it strikes me that statistics give us this extraordinary confidence in the sense that we will quote a statistic as though it is, you know, a slam dunk end end to an argument, when in reality it's nothing of the kind. You know, that statistics have the, first of all, you know, uh, patently the power to mislead. They can be used highly selectively. I was raising a question the other day which concerns me, which is that when we when we receive one of those papers from the government or, you know, the National Trust or whoever it may be, okay, who are looking at their diversity figures, okay, and they ask your ethnicity, I'm not sure that we shouldn't refuse to answer, regardless of your ethnicity. Just say, mm. I decline to answer. And if enough people decline to answer, now let me explain why this is a problem. Because, okay, ethnicity is undoubtedly a dimension. There is undoubtedly ethnic prejudice. Okay, no one's disputing this. Okay, but if you measure that, if you measure discrepancies and disparities between different ethnic groups, to the exclusion of anything else, right? Okay, and your measure, your proxy measure for the diversity of a population is the extent to which it represents the ethnic makeup of a country. Okay? Um, We're going to commit some terrible, terrible offences where, you know, old Etonians of colour in the UK, you know, are basically, you know, recipients of a bidding war, whereas people from, you know, incredibly impoverished white backgrounds... Uh, you know, can't make it into university. Mm. I was talking to Conrad Wolfren about this, where he was at Eton, okay? And there was a guy there who was from an incredibly poor background, but who managed to get three or four scholarships. So he got, because of an extraordinary mathematical talent or whatever it might have been, which meant he got to go to Eton for free, right? Yeah, really, really, you know, uh, genuinely... Exceptional. Exceptional no. case, Okay. And it suddenly occurred to Conrad Wolfram that when he goes and applies to universities, they're going to be slightly reluctant to take him because their privately educated figures, okay, are measured against their state school figures. And this guy had patently been to a private school. So regardless of any other factors or considerations in his background, mm. he was at a disadvantage. In, he's let's a white say, guy from a private school. I, I'm, not even, I'm not even sure he's white, by the way. But it was still, it was, okay. the anti-private school bias would still right. be taken as a kind of, uh, well, wherever possible, we'd rather take someone, you know. 
And then, of course, what, what do you do with grammar schools? They're in Kent. They're selective schools, okay, but you don't pay for them. Now, th those schools, in a sense, enable universities to take people who've been de facto privately educated with a ver in a very selective, rarefied environment, but treat them as if they're state school um, uh, admissions for the purposes of statistics. Mm. Now, okay, you will notice a correlation, but you know, you wouldn't expect, um, uh, let's say, doctors or vets necessarily uh, to reflect the ethnicity of the population. But it, it's interesting to measure. I mean, it, one interesting thing you'll find is that probably people of colour are overrepresented in medicine relative to the population, massively underrepresented in veterinary science. This is a point made by a friend of mine who's Sri Lankan. And he, his explanation, not mine, don't shoot the messengers, that basically, you know, South Asians just don't like animals very much. <laughs> Okay. What? <laughs> what? Well, no, I mean, uh, it, I would have suggested the the uh, the cultural question. Uh, the idea of being a lawyer or a doctor is is just a much higher value well, in certain cultures. Than being a, they're, they're probably well, the other thing is there probably isn't what you like a role model of being a vet if you come from okay. certain countries. I mean, there could be all kinds of reasons. Yeah. What you'll also see, you know, along with disparities according to. Uh, uh, you know, ethnicity, and we should measure that as part of a whole basket of measures, right? I'm not, I'm not suggesting we ignore it. What I'm, dis what I'm uncomfortable about is it becoming the only measure, because you will see a huge correlation between people's educational performance and the number of books their parents had in the house. No one's asking for that, okay? No one's mm. asking that information, right? I mean, one of the interesting things which always fascinates me is the single biggest predictor of whether you're a doctor or not. Uh, whether your okay. parents are doctors. <laughs> now, no one goes, this medical thing, it's a fucking disgrace. It's just nepotism, right? Yeah. yeah. They accept the fact that what you're exposed to affects your affects life you. choices to an extent. You know, if your dad is a professional footballer or musician or something, you are more likely to go into the music industry. Mm. And that is some mixture of, some of it's probably nepotism. Because let's face it, you do have a massive unfair advantage in getting into medicine if your dad's a doctor, right? There's a, my grandfather's a doctor, my father wasn't, okay? I have no fucking clue what houseman means, or like, you know, all this terminology. I have no idea about how you, apart from like, you better do biology at A-level. I have no idea really how you go about it, okay? Whereas um, someone whose parents are doctor can basically grease the wheels in all kinds of ways. But for mm. some reason, nobody gets angry about this. Mm. Now, it could also be because of the profession. Uh, doctor is extremely honourable. People sort of accept that you don't get into it because of uh, money. Maybe it's not as necessarily as hyper-competitive as some of the other maybe more business finance um, tracks would be where they accuse of nepotism. Yeah, but I mean, uh, it is interesting that we, we, we would consider nepotism... You know, if, if WPP were run by three of Martin Sorrell's sons, we'd be a bit iffy about it. But if it happens at the level of a profession... I'm just saying, okay... Mm. You know, it, um, it's particularly complicated. But anyway, I won't go into this whole thing. But what I'm saying is that, okay, no one, no one's, no one's claiming here that this is irrelevant or it's unimportant or that you know racism is exaggerated or anything like that. Forget about mm. all that stuff. All mm. I'm saying is that if you want to measure, um, you know, uh, some degree of whether a society is successful in promoting uh, social mobility, it shouldn't be the only game in town. Okay. Now, okay, an inter interesting detail, okay, you know, the U.S. has been 
widely heralded for, you have, okay, the current vice president, former president, uh, Colin Powell, for example, etc., etc., okay. Um, it's just interesting, right? Now, all of the three, those three people, you know, undoubtedly are people of colour, mixed race in the case of um, uh, Kamala Harris. Just interesting detail. All three of them have parents born in the Commonwealth, not born in the United States. So, you know, you know in one measure, they're the same. In another measure, mm. they're slightly different. It might be interesting to explore that. I don't know, right? Mm. Mm. So, it, you know, it, the, all, I, all I'm saying is that this is, it, it is complete. And by the way, what you could end up doing is you could end up with certain sectors of, uh, you know, a particular ethnic group becoming very economically successful, other sectors of the group being the victims of disadvantage and discrimination. But once you start averaging things, once you start lumping people of a particular ethnicity together, you're actually losing information, aren't you? Because you're basically just generalizing to one factor. What we said before, smoothing it out. And so, yeah. you know, you're treating as smooth something that's lumpy. Yeah, yeah. You know, now... And you miss out on the important details, the uh, defining characteristics. And actually, the important stuff is probably the first stuff to get lost. So it would be things like Simpsons <laughs> paradoxes, right? You know, the, you know, there are obviously confounding variables going on yeah. in a lot of these things, which is, uh, you, you know, uh, okay, I mean, one, one reason why vets tend to be white by the way, is that probably people who go into veterinary science tend to grow up in the countryside, where, and the countryside historically of the UK had a much smaller ethnic population than the towns and cities, or particularly cities did. Mm. You know, other questions, you know, I, I, I make this point in, you know, in terms of, say, advertising. Most people in advertising don't necessarily, weren't actually just born Londoners. Now, what what ethnic mix should an advertising agency in London aspire to reach as a mark of diversity? Is it the composition of London? Is it the composition of the UK? Is it the composition of South East England? Because should it aspire these... to any set number at all? And also, should you? Um, I mean, uh, you know, is it? Is it? I'm, I'm just saying, is it safe to use one thing? Um, as a, because what you're suggesting, in a sense, is that the only source of inequality... If you're not careful, you'll come to conclusions which suggest that the only cause of inequality, unfairness and injustice in the UK is, say, racial or prejudice or, um, uh, or gender prejudice, because those things are mm -hmm. easy to measure, right? Mm -hmm. And you also can't lie about them. I mean, you, you, I mean, you could argue that when you fill in these forms, since it's actually not illegal to lie about your ethnic identity... I, I, I guess you could. I don't know. There's one form on the census, which is your religious affiliation, which uh, there's no obligation to tell the truth, which is why everybody <laughs> said they were a Jedi Knight last time round. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. Now, just to be clear on this, I'd have no problem answering those questions, honestly, if I felt mm. that the statistics were being handled with sufficient nuance and understanding of complexity, mm -hmm. not to... That you suspect they're not being not to yes. be abused or, or, or you know effectively hijacked yeah. for some purpose or other. I don't have that faith, to be honest. And something uh, really interesting here as well. You know, we're speaking for sixty minutes now, um, and there's been no talk of marketing or advertising. Everything that you're thinking about is almost system design. 
You know, how can something be done better or done with more clarity? Um, I, I found that a really, really compelling part of alchemy because you are this marketing guru, yet you're not talking about, you know, Coke campaigns, McDonald's campaigns well, I mean, instead, you know. I mean, there are really important lessons from complexity, by the way, which marketers don't necessarily understand. And when marketers do understand it, they don't necessarily relay it to other parts of the business. So I'll give you one example. The fact that the adoption of a new behavior or a new opinion or anything else tends to be kind of a sigmoid curve. I think it's explained by the fact that people are very driven by two default modes in behavior, one of which is habit, okay? Any food eaten by a living organism, by definition, has not killed them, right? So the fact that we tend to eat things we've eaten before and so on and so forth, to an extent, um, is, uh, you know, has a, basically you know, imbued in us a kind of, uh, when in doubt, do what I've done before, okay? You know, this shampoo was pretty good last time. You know, you know, what are the gains to experimentation here? What's the exploit, explore, trade-off, you know? Um, uh, you know, buy the same shampoo. And similarly, we also have a default mode, which is do what everybody else is doing, because if they're all eating the, the uh, yellow berries, then it's fairly safe to believe that they're safe to eat. Now, because this means that change in things, attitudes, behaviors, etc., is not linear or anything like it, I think once you understand that, you need to evaluate your advertising differently because actually the time at which your advertising might look most effective may be the time in which it's actually least necessary. Mm. It's when a product has already taken off and reached critical mass air fryer world okay did you see this this thing i've been i've been evangelizing the air fryer for 10 years there's documentary evidence <laughs> I on youtube that. Yeah, yeah okay and it was something that i always thought uh, along with japanese toilets a few other things also electric mm. cars etc it interests me because although it's a hard product to sell once people Patient buy one better. they never go back multi-channel yeah. tv was like that in the uk nobody wanted it for decades literally mm. You know, about, like, four channels is you know four channels is fine. You know, and, 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 <laughs> but once people actually ended up with 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 sixty channels or more, going back to four channels was kind of unthinkable, right? Yeah. Now, what's interesting about those products actually is exactly that that they're ratchet products. They're very slow to sell. Mobile phones, same thing. A lot of people were highly resistant to mobile telephony, but once you get a mobile phone, the number of people who actually go, I don't want that anymore, is tiny. Now, understanding that um, path of behavioral change, okay, and the fact that it's nonlinear, seems to me vital to understanding all kinds of things about the world, one of which being why perhaps large companies don't innovate successfully because they're too quick to kill things off. The question they should be asking, Nespresso only survived within Nestle because for a couple of years they lied about their sales figures to head office. They is that knew a fact? that. Yeah, they knew they were onto. Well, lied is must, such a such a strong word. But let's just say but that's their they, biggest. Uh, yeah. that's the biggest. Line I mean, it's a billion dollar, moment. you know, billion dollar creation. Yeah. Fantastic thing. Innovative coffee. Drinking yeah. it right now. There we go. Bit of product oh, placement. Um, but <laughs> the point I'm making there is that if you understand this, the question you should be asking of a new product or innovation is not what is the pace of growth of this category. Mm. 
It should be of people who buy this product, how many of them repeat buy. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, you know, Japanese toilet will be a case in point, okay? I've got one Japanese toilet. It will be 10 years before I buy another one. But eventually, when another toilet needs replacing, having experienced one Japanese toilet, there's no way I'm going back to dry ass wiping. It's barbaric, <laughs> right? But when you understand those patterns of change, the world starts to make more sense. So, for example, you know, people who get really, really angry about right-wing bogeymen, you know, because there are people who are slow to pick up on some particular, you know, political trend or nuance or whatever, okay? Or the fact that older people are resistant to listing their gender pronouns at the bottom of an email, okay? Look, it's just how the world works. We don't change our minds simultaneously, okay? There is a, you know, uh, that most attitudinal change, and I would include that attitudes to same-sex marriage, attitudes to drink driving, for example, effectively kind of permeate through a population. There are still, you know, there are still, you know, unapologetic smokers kicking around the place. There are still people who unapologetically drink and drive, Okay. But they're far fewer in number than they would have been in, you know, my parents' generation. My parents didn't drink and drive. I'm not dobbing them in here, right? But I'm saying a lot of their contemporaries did. And incidentally, you wouldn't stop someone in 1974 leaving your house in their car if they'd had a bit too much to drink, whereas I think now you would. Yeah. Well, yeah. back then it might have been socially unacceptable. <laughs> like, what are you doing now? It would almost be You'd almost wrestle them to the ground to not and not say something. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, it would have been yeah, we were in an awkward conversation full to say, I don't think, yeah. So all those kind sort of things change, and, mm. you know, as the context changes, our behaviour changes. So uh, let, let me explain in complexity terms why it's important that you believe in alchemy, okay? Okay. There's a downside to acknowledging complexity, undoubtedly, which is it's far less easy to be certain or absolutist or to actually... Um, reach a single demonstrably optimal answer to a problem. That's the downside, right? And so because of that downside, people pretend things aren't complex where they are. When, when they are. There's an upside to complexity, which is what Buckminster Fuller called trim tab, which is with enough exploration and indeed, I would argue, creativity and with enough uh, a, a combination of you know, creative hypothesizing and experimentation, you can achieve extraordinarily large effects with extraordinarily small interventions. And so the, uh, you know, the, what happens is, if we are craving not good decisions, we're trying to make decisions that are easy to quantify and justify, we will pretend there is no complexity in the situation. We'll re, we will rewrite it in a kind of Newtonian model, you know, linear Newtonian kind of two-body problem model, and then we will pretend that our model, the answer to the model, is the is the answer to the problem. Okay, and that way we'll never get fired because um, you never get fired for doing something if your reasoning's good enough. Okay. Even if the consequences are dire. Right. Okay. And so there's a huge bias in the corporate world towards pretending things are simple, so that you effectively can practice what Gerd Gigerenza calls defensive decision making. A huge amount of the effort in business is actually ass covering disguised as rigor. Okay. 
people already know what they want to do, but they bring in a management consultancy to tell them in 200 charts why that's what they have to do. So that if what they do goes wrong, it's not their fault anymore. We hold meetings so that blame can be dispersed for a decision rather than concentrating on one individual. All this stuff. And Gilgit-Rensemola said if it weren't for defensive decision-making, the economy could grow faster and we could all go home on Wednesday afternoons. Okay, so that's the one problem. The second problem is by pretending things are simple optimization problems with a demonstrably optimal answer, we exclude magic from the solution set. And when I mean magic, I mean merely things where a tiny little change in perception, a tiny little change in phraseology, Mm. a tiny little change in web design can have an absolutely monumentally large positive Mm. effect. Mm. Um, And so... um, of which there are amazing examples throughout our Of which, of which there are, you know, but I mean, yeah. it is a tiny, tiny proportion. I mean, I at the moment think you could solve a lot of the problem with the bloat in higher education, okay? Um, uh, a very simple solution, okay? If, you, if you've worked and paid tax for two or three years, the cost of attending university in the UK should be half price. So you've proven you can hold down a job. You probably have decided you know what job you want to do and you want to study then to become better at it. Therefore, the price of doing that should be half the price of going to university straight after you left school. What's the point about that? How does that work magically? Okay, It gives people who, who want to get a job straight after school rather than going to university straight after school a plausible narrative, okay, to enable them to go to employers and say, I did, you know, I did think about going to university, but I've decided to do it later in life. Mm. Um, at the moment, okay, that fundamental question of, of where, uni- where employers are using your university attendance, the fact that you went and how well you did, as the single dominant proxy for who they hire, or rather, at least the first filter. A second solution, okay, would be something I'd encourage in Ogilvy. We set prospective, we do this in Ogilvy, actually, you set prospective um, applicants a trial, several trials. You judge those trials blind. Only then, when you've made your selection from the people conducting that trial, do you look at their educational background. That's just an order change, right? At the moment, we use the educational background to do the filtration, and then we use interviews and, you know, final selection days to do the final selection. In some ways, if you reversed the order in which you did that, the the ludicrous kind of higher education Ponzi scheme would be seriously damaged below the waterline. The reason people the reason people need to basically you know get a fancy damn degree um, is simply I, I had a friend who he had a double first in maths okay from Cambridge he was very brilliant um, and I, I said to him um, he was at Goldman Sachs or somewhere like that and I said how long how long is it that you've been working in a bank where people still care about what degree class you got and he said it's kind of I can't remember exactly the answer but he said it's kind of like a half life. But after five or six years, nobody really cares. It's, I see you worked for this, and you did this, and you achieved this, and you worked with this guy, and I respect that guy massively. So if he's happy to employ you, then I'm happy to employ you. All the other shit basically kicks in, right? So the, you know, but the, the reason the degree is so critical is that it's at a decisive moment in your life, it's the only card you've got to play. Now, if you change that, 
all right, by basically changing the kind of uh, the sequence of recruitment and selection so that you didn't use degree class as the principal sorting hat, okay? The entire business will be totally different. Now, my argument is that by judging people on degree class, you'll end up with, uh, you know, 10% of people getting offered 100 interviews and 50% of people getting offered no interviews at all, right? That's an extraordinary waste of talent. I mean, just to know how weird it is, there's a guy I met who had a double first from Oxford in theology and philosophy, and he couldn't get an interview with a consulting firm because they prefer engineers. Oh, fuck off. You know? Crazy, isn't it? Yeah, fuck, seriously, fuck off. You know, I, feel I, mean, that, I, mean, I feel that big time, Rory. I mean, I have a very average degree from a very average university, and I'm in a country, and I've been out of my own country for so many years now. There is, um, you know, just how can I show some value to this prospective employer beyond my business degree in economics from UTS, a university nobody knows, you know, five, seven years ago. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, what you're saying, it really resonates. And, it also, it also contains, it also contains the absolutely insulting assumption that you gain human capital when you're in an educational institution, but you don't when you're in a commercial institution. I learned far more my, my first three years at Ogilvy than I did in my three years at Cambridge, right? Yeah. Okay, you, you, learn, you, yeah. Learn, you learn by doing, okay? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and, you know, okay, okay, you know, looking back, I wish I'd done a year of psychology or something, but how, how was I to know that at the time? But you've learned the psychology now. Well, yeah, I mean, you know? my father always complains. He's 94, and he got a third from Cambridge, I think. And he always complains, you know, since I left Cambridge, I've probably read, you know, I don't know, 2,000 books on history. But according to the credentialist rule, I'm no better, I'm, I'm no better yeah. informed than I was age 23, right? 70 yeah. years of bloody reading count for zilch. And in your mm -hmm. case, okay, what we need to be creating... Okay, it all depends. It all depends, really, how you view the world. You can either view the world like Shakespeare, which is different personalities, different talents, different types are all part of the fabric of what makes humanity magnificent. You know, you've got all these <laughs> laughable kind of comic characters who are still, you know, you know, uh, you know, a valuable part of what it means to be human. And you put them all together in the right mix, and you've got some sort of magic. Or you can view it as a kind of linear sorting hat where there are... And, and the, the whole question of meritocracy assumes hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Okay? It assumes that basically everybody can be ranked on a kind of single scale in terms of their worth. It's absolute nonsense. The value of most people depends on their complementarity and their complementary relationships with other people. You know, if you want, if you want to have a job for life... You know, I always say, find something your boss is really bad at. Find a really talented guy who's going to move up the ranks, okay? Find what he's bad at. You know, maybe it's public speaking. Maybe it's writing, okay? Maybe it's something like that. Be complimentarily uh, good a, at good that one. thing, yeah. Yeah, right? Definitely, yeah. And that's and, probably more applicable now than ever. And my other suggestion is find two, try and be quite good at two things, hmm. okay? Because there are loads of people trying to be really good at one thing. Okay, you're up against impossible odds. Okay, no. if you're trying to be the world's best tennis player, sorry, you're going to fail, right? Okay, unless you have an extraordinary mixture of genetic luck, mm. parents who are fanatical tennis players, God as well, your odds are zilch, right? But if you're a terrific data scientist and a tennis player, all of a sudden you're, you're, you're so, suddenly you've got a gig now, and you've got a really interesting gig. You know, absolutely no. right. 
and, and so, so the, the whole thing actually is um, is making us think about the world in completely the wrong way, mm. and and making us think about human talent in completely the wrong way. By the way, you know, a good ad agency. Let's be honest. You need a few chin-stroking Oxbridge types around the place, male or female. <laughs> but obviously. why? I mean, why is that? Um, uh, a, 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 it's probably useful for credentials. Um, B, there are things that chin stroke types that. Then again, you're feeding back into the same problem that you've just identified. Okay, we would why, be much. Okay, well, so okay, important. we would be much poorer uh, as an ab- You know, I'll, you know, Paul Feldwick, I think, has a, his genuine beard. I don't think he'd mind being, <laughs> uh, you know, portrayed as a chin stroking, you know, intellectual type. <laughs> and the advertising industry would be inordinately poorer without mm. people like that. But it'd also be inordinately poorer without a bunch of people who joined after school and started in the post room. Okay? And advertising's actually... It, it's it's as interesting as a culture, in many ways, as it is as an actual business. You know, it's quite a distinctive but interesting culture. And the point is that what makes an advertising in, in, uh, agency interesting is the, is the complementary relationships between different talents, entirely, you know... And, you know, and, and of course, it means you have a very weird mix of people under the same roof. Mm. But no, no, I mean, you did, no, the other reason you probably need it is just confidence. That, you know, it, you know, and sometimes you needed it because some of your clients might be chin-stroking Oxbridge types who like working with, you know, all that sort of stuff. Okay. Right, right. Uh, you know, so what I'm saying is they're part of the ecosystem, you know, uh, you know, just as, you know, Falstaff is, you know, is, is, is part of the kind of fabric of humanity they're just people like that right you know and um um so i think um i i think that what we're trying to do instead i mean what i find slightly offensive about what you might call the middle class educated you know right thinking davos project is deep at the heart of it is one simple assumption which is the world would be a better place if everybody were more like me okay and it's you know, it simply isn't true. And you know, I mean, it also it also um, the very weird sort of binary opinions prevent much more interesting discussions from taking place as well. Mm. So, okay, like, immigration. Okay, are you for it? Are you against it? Neither. Okay, this is my response. Patently, we can see some countries that have done it pretty well, and which have. Im- emphatically benefited the United okay. States um, I mean, even more so maybe Canada and Australia actually okay sure yeah definitely okay. Australia <laughs> okay Australia's done it pretty well I don't know what they're doing yep. okay there are also countries where it genuinely has you know is not working yet maybe it'll work for later. example okay I'm not going to give one but you know <laughs> uh, but I mean no no I mean there are okay there are, you know, there are countries where it has posed a problem. There is a speed right. at which you do it. Okay, do you do it fast? Do you do it slow? You know, mm-hmm. in other words, do you do, do you do it in jumps or this, this is what a complexity theorist would ask you. Okay, do you do yes. it in infrequent, sporadic jumps or do you do it as a gradual stream? Um, is it, you know, um, uh, you know, and and you know, what is the relationship between a humanitarian objective and an economic objective? Da 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 da. Very important question. Okay, d- you know, okay, they're all really important questions. Okay, yeah. now, um, those are the questions we should be asking. We should be discussing how do we make this work well. Now, instead, it's become just a signalling competition where people, <laughs> you know, basically are, you know, regarded as unfashionable to ask any questions. Yeah. 
There's also, by the way, an ethical question, which is if you're hiring doctors from sub-Saharan Africa, okay, are you actually piggybacking on their educational system? <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I mean, ser- serious point, right? You're, you're, well, you're yeah, I mean, stealing people from where they're more too. needed. Okay. Are you are what, you what part of the, the consequence of the best labor and human capital leaving a country that therefore leaves it poorer? Do you have yeah, an ethical okay. problem? Just, with yeah, that? I'm just saying. Yeah. So, so, but what's weird is that if you raise any questions, not necessarily saying I am opposed to it because I'm emphatically not. Okay, merely <laughs> saying that there are successful ways to do it, there are unsuccessful ways to do it. Um, there is a successful pace at which it works. There is a pace at which it almost certainly wouldn't. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, and you know. You know, bluntly speaking, if you double the population of the UK in the space of a year, you know, it's not going to work, right? <laughs> it's not going to turn out well. No. And there's, you know, there's probably a kind of laugher curve around this sort of shit. But the point is that the... Why is it that we send people to really intelligent um, educational institutions and they come out of it with almost a more kind of manichaean good versus evil view of the world than they had when they went in? It's 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 just kind of whack, mm. and suddenly you know suddenly actually you know the fashionable nature of your opinion, you know and this is the great thing of luxury opinions. Rob Henderson writes about there are certain things which people opinions which people wear, really for the purposes of sort of social approbation and signalling. That's very interesting. What, what what's an example? Are you talking about say literally what you wear, your fashion as a signal of an? Op- uh, well, there is an argument that it's kind of there could be an element of costly signalling, which is, you know, you know, is a very, very pro. You know, uh, for example, you could be in favour of certain things which are actually mm. ha- harmful in general to signal the fact that you're rich enough or successful enough to be immune from the downside effects. Okay. Yeah. There all sure. there's also massive hypocrisy in the sense that if you look at, uh, you know elite liberal opinion it's very very easy going in terms of you know things like divorce for example you know um and so on but if you look at their own behavior they're they're very very likely to stay married Hmm. so so there's you know there are also cases of kind of you know do as i say not do as i do do Uh, which I think are disturbing. But read Rob Henderson on that, because his suggestion is there are certain opinions which just become kind of... They're like shibboleths. You know, they're kind of like, you know... Yeah. Well, Roy, we've hit 12.30. Um, I genuinely asked you one of the 15 questions I prepared... (laughs) Um, throw me actually I've got 10 more minutes so throw me just a few real rapid then, fire ones to good then wrap perfect we're going to finish okay. with three rapid fire that I like to ask every guest if possible alright first of all Mr. Sutherland the role of serendipity how has it shaped your life again very sort of Talibian undertones uh, I understand the extent to which many many activities work simply to increase your surface area exposure to op- upside optionality Oh, thank you. That's a very textbook definition. uh, (laughs) If you look at it, why do people go to business conferences? They don't necessarily go with a specific plan in mind. They simply know that if you don't go, you'll never get lucky. My daughters go to parties. They don't have a plan. They don't have a cost-benefit analysis for each party they attend. They simply know that if you stay home, no upside will come to you, whereas if you go Mm -hmm. to parties, it probably will. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and yourself in your own life. Great moments same, of serendipity. Same, by the way, the you. principal way in which advertising works, uh, the principal way that advertising works is that fame, um, there will always be opportunities of which you yourself are completely unaware. If you're famous, those opportunities come to you, so you're not confined to the opportunities yeah, exactly. you know about. And therefore, the value to fame is actually probabilistic. It's not kind of calculable in advance. Amazing. That's a great answer. But in your own particular life, um, one or two defining moments of serendipity. Oh, yeah. I'll I'll, I'll give you one, which is a perfect example, okay, which is if you're in the public speaking gig, you should go and speak at some events that don't really make sense. Because um, you can't evaluate a speaking engagement in isolation because the value of a speaking engagement consists of both it it itself and the chance you get invited to subsequent speaking engagements Mm. and people say to you how did you get to do a talk at ked global which was kind of decisive i made the eurostar joke you know you know i occasionally appear on my kids tiktok um thing (laughs) making that joke much to their embarrassment the reason I got to speak there was I went and spoke at a conference which I really shouldn't have spoken at for complicated reasons. didn't make sense mm. to go. Uh, it was actually a conflicting client with a current Ogilvy client. And I said, sorry, I've committed to go. I'm going to go. Someone there then invited me to speak at Nokia Global, which was a much bigger event. Okay. And then at Nokia Global, Chris Anderson from TED was in the audience. And he said, I want you to give a talk at TED Global. There you go. Okay. And there's... My point there is that you, if you assess everything by its immediately appreciable and quantifiable value and not by its probabilistic value, you probably conf- uh, you, you're, you're focusing yourself too narrowly. Mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think a fifth of people, you know, a fifth of, you know, if you were a really successful company, which wasn't charged by the hour as we are, I'd basically say a fifth of your time should be going out potentially finding new recruits, talking to schools to encourage them to work in advertising. Mm. All that kind of, you know, low, slow payback probabilistic stuff is underinvested in because of our need to justify every minute of our day. Mm. Again, amazing. And uh, we could, I'm sure I get the sense, pull on that thread of serendipity quite a lot more. Yep. Um, however, for, this, for, the, uh, for the sake of time... Um, a country you're particularly bullish on, Mr. Sutherland? India. Um, it's, uh, uh, I, I thought that our obsession with China versus India was imbalanced. Uh, and India is growing nearly as much as China, but is doing it in a kind of organic bottom-up way, which I think is fundamentally more resilient. Okay. Than you know, having a, a Politburo full of engineers sort of planning cities in the middle of nowhere, mm. and ultimately, I think the uh, strength enjoys. You know, I, I, you know, I, I think ultimately, it's uh, it, it's it used to kind of piss me off. Okay, having loads of business people endlessly bigging up. You know, what is you know, a pretty top-down regime. Um, uh, it's going to be more difficult to do business in India because it's inherently messier, but that's kind of the point, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, also, also, I mean, you know, um, other countries that um, fascinate me, 
I, I mean, three I particularly loved. I mean, this is, if you invited me somewhere else, don't take offence. Um, <laughs> uh, but Iceland absolutely in, uh, intrigued me. And also Israel, I found absolutely cool. fascinating as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's been the, the, quite a few... The pace of... The, first of all, the level of interest in behavioural science in India is absolutely extraordinary. You know, I, I guess about... A, I well, don't that's know. surprising. No, I've never no, seen really... No, 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 because it, it's, a, it's a high ambiguity tolerance culture. Hmm. Uh, it's the, 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 one of the great advantages, according to one Indian friend of mine, is that they're polytheistic, so they don't demand one theory to explain everything. Okay, <laughs> so it, you know, it, it, it is in that sense. You know, it's got a high ambiguity tolerance. Um, Israel, the level of creative, you know, uh, the level of creativity was astonishing. You know, um, which is probably a response to circumstance, but I was absolutely beguiled by that as well. And Iceland, sort of, uh, Iceland, yeah. you've got to go there because it's a short-haul flight from London, but when you land, you're on the moon, and the people were lovely. Yeah. But those are just three <laughs> examples. Actually, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, one of my things I big up is Australian, New Zealand kind of intellectual life. You know, uh, Nicholas Gruen, you probably know, the economist, do you, from Oz, based in Melbourne. But I always joke to the Australian kind of academics that they're a bit like Australian flora and fauna. They've kind of evolved slightly in isolation. So as a result, they're much more interesting than the people nice. who've evolved kind of, you know, uh, you know, evolved on a kind of massive continent. You know, mm. the, the very fact that you've kind of evolved separately um, mm. produces just more interesting thought, I think. That's a that's a funny insight to have. I think uh, Ian Australian back. economists I quite like Steve Keane. Yeah, I, I know Steve well. Exactly the other example. Oh, the, another go. example I was going to give. I was uh, going to read his audio book. Totally original guy. Uh, funny enough, Ian McGilchrist, when I said this, also agreed with me. I was chatting to him, and he said he he similarly finds the appreciation of his stuff and generally the interesting stuff that emerges particularly good in Australia. Nice. I'm really happy to hear you big up Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Wouldn't, um, wouldn't hesitate. I love the place. Yeah. Uh, finally, Mr. Sutherland, uh, a conversation between any two people of history, dead or alive, no language barrier, just someone you would like to listen a podcast between. Bloody hell. I'm trying to go... Uh... Never been asked exactly that question, and um, who Adam Smith would have to be one of them. I mean, you know, solving economics is really easy. It's be more like Adam Smith, okay? <laughs> you know, cut cut out the obsession with you know. Um, Adam Smith would probably be one of them, um, and uh, another one might be. It might be someone like you know one of those people Herbert Simon or someone like that would be interesting, but uh, okay, um, who's Herbert who, Simon? Uh, oh, interesting. He's kind of f really, in a sense, the forefather of. No, I'll tell I'll tell you the second one. I think the first behavioural economist and and unfairly uh, underrated Aesop. Okay. That's one you weren't expecting, okay? But no. Aesop <laughs> is basically a collector of what you might call paradoxes and. Uh, nice. You know, apparent contradictions in human behaviour. As I, are you, a collector of paradoxes. I, I, I think, I think it was Aesop, who, um, uh, reading Aesop, I had a children's book when I was like eight, okay, and just the three. So Aesop, the three things I find really interesting are detective fiction. So another person who'd be high on uh, there would be 
um, uh, you know, um, a, a, possibly a great writer of detective fiction or Conan Doyle or someone, you know, that, that kind. Um, crosswords, cryptic crosswords, where what you have to do is see what people don't want you to see. Mm. Okay. <coughs> and I think there's a weird influence. I had this children's book when I was about six or seven, which is like illustrated town mouse and the country mouse, illustrated Aesop's fables, which I for some reason loved. Mm. And I often wonder whether that was a kind of, you know, decisive early moment. <laughs> so him and Adam Smith. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. All right, then. Well, Rory, um, thank you for being generous with your time. I uh, really, really love your enthusiasm. I think it's very infectious. And I listen to Alchemy, and you can also hear the enthusiasm come through there as well. But um, thank you so much, sir. I really do appreciate you giving me the time. An absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Again, thank you so much, Rory. Absolute pleasure speaking with you. I genuinely got through 10% of the questions that I had scheduled. Um, you know, such is the erudition of his worldview. Basically, you give him any topic and he'll be able to riff on it. That's interesting for a very, very, very long time. Other interesting things that I wanted to uh, ask Rory about was, say, Salman Rushdie, because he actually worked with him for a while um, at Ogilvy, uh, getting uh, Rory's like sort of gut instinctual response to how you would apply alchemy to podcasting, for example, things like this. But anyway, there will always be a next time. Finally, to you, my dear and generous listener. Thank you so much for listening this far through. If you have, I think it means that we can get a review. So, bring the Apple reviews beyond a thousand by next week, the Spotify reviews beyond a hundred by next week. Pump that good juice into the multiple and various algorithms. Swipe up your phone, leave five-star reviews, say nice things about the product, because the podcast's uh, algorithms, the indexing, it's all in the Stone Age. There's no discoverability. The only way to get these podcasts to spread is by lots and lots of reviews so people see it and it's a measure of authority but thank you so much for listening you're all a bunch of legends i got a lot of podcasts recording next week we got a lot of backlog interesting ones coming up keep telling people about it ciao